Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, for your word made flesh, for his life lived in our place, his death made for our sake, his resurrection made for the hope of all mankind who place their trust in him, and his reigning and ruling in our hearts now, Father, so that we might know him, we might serve him, we might enjoy him. None of these things, Father, were by any means other than your mercy and grace poured out on us even while we were yet still his enemies. What a good God you are, Father. How merciful, how kind, how loving, how unlike we can be. And Lord, that's why we come to you in your word tonight. We want to know as much about who you are, particularly who your son is, Jesus, our Lord and Savior, so that as we sit at his feet by the reading of his word tonight, Father, we might become a little bit more like him in our thoughts, in our actions, in who we are, and in what we do. Help us become that Christ-like person that we endeavor to be, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, last week, as I said, we studied Jesus' baptism. If you weren't here for that teaching, I'd highly encourage you to listen to it online. I think you'll find some things in there that you may not have expected to hear. I remember teaching it and seeing the expression in your faces when I taught a few of the things I taught. I I wasn't sure someone was going to throw something at me at one point. Because we focused not only on the purpose of the event, but the meaning of it and, and the details of it, specifically why he came for water baptism. And as I said last week, he didn't come because he was trying to receive a repentance baptism. You know, the baptism of repentance, which is the one John was offering to those around the river. That's not why Jesus came, because he didn't need repentance. He was coming to be baptized for other reasons. And I taught those reasons last week. Let me summarize. His baptism, as he said, was fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Or we could say his baptism was a public act of obedience to the Father necessary for righteousness' sake. At that moment, there was a handoff taking place between John the Baptist and his ministry and Jesus' ministry. And that was the formal moment of that transition. Secondly, that baptism inaugurated Jesus' public ministry, made possible by the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which came upon him in conjunction with that moment. And then lastly, it established a pattern for all of us as his followers. We now do something of a similar sort. We go into the water, we get baptized so that we can repeat his footsteps. We follow in his footsteps. And then as he was baptized, you remember in the text, the father confirmed his pleasure in Jesus' obedience with that audible statement of affirmation spoken from heaven. He says, this is Jesus. He said, he is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And that's a ringing endorsement by God, of the one that he sent to earth for the purpose of redeeming mankind. The statement by the Father was heard only by John the Baptist. The other people around the river didn't hear it. But undoubtedly, John would have reported what he heard to others as he testified that this Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah. And then eventually what John testified to was written down in the Gospels. That's why we have it today. That's why we know about it. But as the Father spoke and revealed the identity of his Son, there was someone else listening On that day, there was someone else who heard the Father's words. This someone else is a powerful figure, an important character in the story of Jesus. And he, too, desperately desired to know the identity of the Messiah. He waited that day, nearby, no doubt. He was watching the proceedings intently. He was probably listening to every word. He knew that the time for the Messiah's arrival was upon him, that it was at hand, and he expected that John the Baptist would be the one to reveal that identity, just as John had promised. But just like everyone else, this powerful figure had no choice but to wait 
for that revelation of John by the river so that he would know the identity of the Son of God. In fact, by the time of the baptism of John, this character had been waiting longer, much longer, than any other person on earth. In fact, he hadn't just been waiting years or even a lifetime. He had been waiting a millennia, several millennia, to learn the identity of the Messiah. His name, Lucifer, or as we call him often, Satan. He had been waiting for the Father to reveal the Messiah so that he could destroy that promised one. Because Satan knew that the Messiah was coming to destroy him. Satan first appears in our Bible, in the third chapter of the Bible. And in order to understand what we're going to study in chapter 4 of Matthew, particularly the opening part of the chapter covering the temptations, you have to understand the adversary. If you don't understand the adversary, I, I defy you to make much sense of what's happening in the opening part of this chapter. So let's spend a little time on that. We come to know of Satan first when we see him confronting women in the garden in chapter 3 of Genesis. Ultimately, as you know, he tempts her and then she falls and then following her, her husband. As we see him in the text in chapter 3, he's already full of hatred of God. He's already speaking nothing but lies at that point. So you might wonder as you read chapter 3 of Genesis, how did Satan become this horrible adversary of God? Surely God didn't make him that way. We know God is not the source of evil. So Satan's backstory, as I'm calling it, is an important detail to understanding what's happening in chapter 4. So what I want to do with you tonight, we're going to get into chapter 4 a little bit. But before we get there, let's do some homework. Let's do some homework on the chief antagonist in the story of the temptation. And that homework will take us out of the Gospel of Matthew for just a little while tonight. First, into the Old Testament, into a book that I know you guys study and love to death. We all do. Ezekiel. Ezekiel 28 is where we're going to be. And we have to spend a few minutes here. And because this is important, turn to Ezekiel 28. Just put your thumb in Matthew or whatever and then flip around or scroll. I don't know what you're doing these days. But we're going to go to Ezekiel 28. And we're going to start in verse 12. This is the backstory of Satan. I'm going to read 28.12 through 28.19. I told my wife before the service, of all the things pit men are preaching on Easter weekend, I'm pretty sure I'm the only one preaching out of Ezekiel 28. Ezekiel 28.12, Son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the ruby, the topaz, and the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, and the jasper, the lapis lazuli, the turquoise, and the emerald, and the gold, the workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you by the abundance of your trade you were filled or internally filled with violence and you sinned therefore i have cast you as profane from the mountain of god and i have destroyed you O covering cherub from the midst of the stones of fire your heart was lifted up because of your beauty you corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor i cast you to the ground i put you before kings that they may see you By the multitude of your iniquities, in the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. Therefore, I have brought fire from the midst of you. It has consumed you, and I have turned you to ashes on the earth in the eyes of all who see you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have become terrified, and you will cease to be forever. Amen. 
So that's a passage describing Satan. He's called the king of Tyre in this passage. That's just a oblique reference to him. But from the details, you see clearly we're talking about someone who existed in the Garden of Eden, who existed as a covering cherub. Those are details that tell us undoubtedly we're looking at Satan. Time doesn't permit me to examine this passage the way I'd like to. That'll wait for our resumption of the Ezekiel study later this year. So let's focus on three details from this passage just to get what we need out of it. Look at verse 12, and I want you to notice Satan's original created nature. The Lord says he was created in perfection, just like everything else God does. Ezekiel says Satan was full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. And the word full in Hebrew, it carries the sense of completeness or abundance. And perfect can mean entirely consumed. So we could say Satan was complete in wisdom and completely consumed in beauty. That means there was no created thing possessing greater wisdom or more beauty than Satan. So I want you to imagine the wisest person who's ever lived or consider the most beautiful thing you've ever seen in creation. Satan exceeds both in his original form. That's why the Bible says he's an angel of light. Furthermore, the Lord testifies in verse 15 that Satan was blameless in his ways from the day he was created. Satan was without sin. He was perfectly obedient to the Father from the beginning of his existence, which, again, confirms for us that the Lord did not establish sin. He is neither the author of the sin of mankind, nor is he the author of the sin of Satan. When he created man, he was good. When he created Satan, he was perfect. Now, the text goes on to say that Satan was the covering cherub. That's the second thing I want you to notice in verse 14. So the first thing is he was created in perfect splendor, beauty, wisdom, and sinless. And then in verse 14, notice the job that God gave to this perfectly created cherub in his service in the, in the heavenly realm. He was called the covering cherub. Now cherubim, which is the plural, I used to say cherubs until someone corrected me. Cherubim are the highest order of heavenly beings among those we hear in scripture. You have cherubim, you have seraphim, and you have angels. Those are all three distinct levels of angelic beings. And Scripture says Satan is one of the highest of those. He's one of the cherubim. Moreover, he held a coveted position in the creation, serving God in the heavenly realm, as the covering cherub. Now that phrase may ring a bell for some of you. Covering cherub. Where have you heard that before? Well, you probably heard it in the instructions that God gave to Moses concerning the building of the tabernacle in Israel. Specifically, cherubim are part of the design of the Ark of the Covenant. I love the the movie, The uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, because even if no one's ever read a Bible, I can at least refer to the movie and they get a sense of what we're talking about at this point, the Ark of the Covenant. Let me take you to just a couple of verses in Exodus. That's our next spot. You want to hold on to Ezekiel 28. We're not done. But in Exodus 37, when they're getting the instructions for how to build and they're carrying them out, here's what we hear in 37 verse 6. Speaking of the man who made the Ark of the Covenant, it says, He made a mercy seat of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and one and a half cubits wide. He made two cherubim of gold, and he made them of hammered work at the two ends of the mercy seat. One cherub at one end, one cherub at the other end. He made the cherubim of one piece with the mercy seat at the two ends. The cherubim had their wings spread upward, covering the mercy seat with their wings. And their faces were toward each other. The faces of the cherubim were toward the mercy seat. As you remember from the movie, or if you have looked at your Bible, the Ark of the Covenant is a rectangular box made of wood covered in gold. And the lid of this box, for lack of a 
better term, just call it a box for now. The lid of it was called the mercy seat. It's called a mercy seat, not because someone sits on it, but because the glory of the Lord rested on the top of this lid, in the center of it. And to honor and to protect the Shekinah glory of God when it was present on top of this lid, inside the tabernacle, it was being protected by two golden cherubim whose wings were effectively creating a canopy of protection over the Shekinah glory of God as it resided in this small space. And this was all set up in the Holy of Holies in the deepest part of the tabernacle. That's why the cherubim were called covering cherubim, because their wings covered the glory of God in that place. In the book of Hebrews, we're also told that the plans that God gave Moses and the people of Israel for how they were to build the tabernacle, including the ark, but including everything else as well, Hebrews says all of that detail was based on heavenly patterns. Specifically, Hebrews says that the earthly tabernacle was modeled after a heavenly tabernacle that operates today in God's presence. So in other words, Moses and Israel were given sort of, you know, like when they build a new skyscraper, they always make a little model of it to show you what it's going to look like before it actually gets built. You know what I'm talking about, right? Just to scale, they even have little people in cars and bushes on the streets and all of that. Well, in a sense, that's what God gave to Israel. He says, you can't see what I got up here, but I'm going to give you a small version of it. And it's going to have very similar dimensions, very similar features. But what that tells us is this. That means that the design of the ark, that box that was in the earthly tabernacle, that's modeled based on an ark that's in the heavenly tabernacle. So just like the earthly tabernacle had golden cherubim covering the mercy seat, well, so the heavenly tabernacle had real cherubim covering that mercy seat. And the covering cherub was none other than Satan himself before he fell. That was his job. Thirdly, I want you to notice in Ezekiel 28, in verses 16 through 18, that the Lord describes the moment of Satan's fall. We get to see a little bit of how the whole thing happened, how it all took place. Scripture says the first sin in creation was Satan's sin, and it happened because, it says, of the abundance of Satan's trade. That is, because of Satan's lofty position, his lofty job, he was filled, it says, internally with violence, and then he sinned. Satan was the one, as I said, personally covering the glory of God. I want you to imagine this in your mind's eye. No created thing was closer to God's presence than Satan. On a regular basis, daily basis, ongoing basis, he was right there next to the glory of God. Furthermore, he knew he was special. He knew he was beautiful, more so than anything else God made. He was wiser than anything else God had made. More powerful then than anything else in the creation. So one day... Satan's special qualities and his unique place guarding the glory of God caused his heart, it says, to be lifted up, which is to say pride, and to be filled with violence. And violence is a physical act of force that's intended to kill, steal, or destroy. So what that means is we need to ask what violent act did his pride lead him to commit, which then led to his downfall. Well, based on what the text is saying, it's my contention that he tried to take the mercy seat by force. He tried to seat himself in the place of God. In verse 18, we're told that Satan's attempted coup profaned the heavenly sanctuaries, leaving it defiled. And at that point, the Lord rejected Satan. 
casting him, sorry, from the heavenly tabernacle to the earth. One little point here for those who've always wondered, when did Satan's fall happen in relationship to the creation? When he fell, he was cast to the earth. He was cast before kings. So that would tell us that at least the earth existed and man were alive when he was cast down, or so it would suggest. So I would say soon after day six, he was cast down. Just one little point of thought of mine. doesn't matter if it's right or not. We're moving on. As he falls, he corrupts mankind. We see that in chapter 3. So notice in verse 19, the Lord says to Satan, as a result of what he's done, one day he'll be judged for his sin and he will cease to be forever. And then later, after the fall in the garden, the Lord clarified in what he said to man and to woman when he spoke those curses after the fall. He made clear that the fall was now going to result in the coming of a seed through woman. And that seed, among other things, would be the one to crush the head of the serpent. That is to say, it would be this Son of God, this promised Messiah, who would be the actor that God would use to carry out the death sentence that he proclaimed against Satan. Well, you and I know this from our Bibles. Satan knows it too. There's a certain irony, by the way, to, to the story we just learned in Ezekiel. And I can't, I, I can't pass by Ezekiel 28 without passing this on because I just love this. It shows you something of God's wisdom and sovereignty. Under the law of Israel, the mercy seat in the tabernacle was a place of atonement. That's where the high priest used to sprinkle the blood of the lamb once a year for atonement for the people's sins. That's why we call it a mercy seat, because it's the place Israel received mercy from God for their sin, right? All right, but think about this. Before Satan fell and created sin, there was no need for mercy because there was no sin to be forgiven. Therefore, there was no need for a mercy seat, right? And yet, before Satan fell, what was he doing? He was guarding a mercy seat. You, you wonder if he ever had a thought while he was working one day and said, why do I do this again? What is all this about? Why do I have a job to guard this thing? What's a mercy seat for? You know, I think God probably answered, hold on. You'll see soon enough. Just hold on. I mean, God knew what was coming. In fact, here's a question for you. If God had never put Satan in charge of guarding a mercy seat, which caused him to have pride so that he fell, would we even have needed a mercy seat? It shows you that God had a plan for all of this to take place just the way it did, and he set it all in motion. So having fallen, Satan goes on the prowl over all the whole earth like a lion, full of pride, full of violence, opposing God, opposing God's people. He still wants to sit in the mercy seat, by the way. There's a reason why Antiochus Epiphanes sat in the mercy seat. There's a reason why the Antichrist will sit in the mercy seat. He keeps trying. He's not done trying. But he's also got a new goal, one he didn't have at the beginning. He now has the goal of destroying the promised one who has to come to defeat him that God said is going to be his undoing. He doesn't know who this is going to be. He doesn't know who the promised seed is going to be. He doesn't know when he's going to arrive. He doesn't know God's plan. He just knows it's coming. But Satan knew that if he could destroy that coming seed, or if he could tempt that coming seed to fall into his own sin, well, then the Messiah's mission would fail. So Satan has remained ever vigilant since that day taking any opportunity he can to strike against anyone who could possibly be that Messiah or do anything he could to prevent the Messiah from coming. That's been his one objective. For example, he struck at the first generation of man, thinking that maybe the seed would come immediately from Adam and woman. So he corrupted Cain and used him to murder Abel, hoping he was stopping the plan of God. And then they had another son. Later, he tried to corrupt the seed of men by ordering his demons to mate with women so that they would produce this grossly distorted race called Nephilim, 
which then would pollute the whole earth and result in no one being able to produce a Messiah. God took care of that with a flood. But each time these things happen, the Lord steps in and says, I'm not going to let you stop my plan. A seed is going to come one day and you will be destroyed. Later, when he revealed to us through the word that the promised seed was going to come only through a certain people, Israel, well, that gave Satan someone to focus on. Ever since then, it's been about destroying the Jewish people. Because now he knows if I destroy the Jewish people, I stop the seed coming to destroy me. So he tries to use Pharaoh to destroy all the male children in Egypt. God gave Moses an escape. Over the centuries, he keeps battling Israel. He tries to get them to be destroyed by enemies or corrupted by other cultures. Anything he can do to stop the coming Messiah. Each time the Lord protects his son. Remember, we studied this in an earlier chapter in Matthew. When the Messiah is finally said to have been born, what does he do? He stirs up the evil heart of Herod to go kill all the male children in Bethlehem. He's got to stop this seed. He's got to stop this destroyer. He's got to stop his enemy. Now the time has come for the protection that the Lord has been offering to his seed, to his son, to be taken away for a while. He's going to let Jesus face this enemy, not as a conquering king, but as a mere man, at the full mercy of Satan. Jesus, up at this point, chapter 4, Matthew, he's lived for about 30 years, as we said. He's, it's been a quiet life. He, he's been living in anonymity. Nobody knows who he is except his mom or his dad, maybe. When his family returned from Egypt, remember, they had fled there from Herod. They returned. He went to Nazareth. Satan didn't know his identity. Satan didn't know who he was. Nobody knew who he was. He was free to live out his life on earth, at least for that period of time, without any worry that he'd be attacked. But now, what has just happened at the end of chapter 3? His father has announced from heaven to the entire spiritual realm, Jesus is the one. There he is. In him I am well pleased. He might as well put a target on Jesus' back for what he just did. And it's purposeful. He knows what he's doing, of course. The word's out, and Satan takes an immediate interest in destroying this one that he has desperately waited millennia to find in the hopes of stopping him. Now he has him, and then you and I can only imagine how eager Satan must have been at that point to get his hands at Jesus for a period of time. Think about it. Think about how much is on the line. Think about how long he's waited. And that's what we're going to study now in chapter 4. You're studying at the outset of this chapter the effort that Satan is making to either compromise Jesus or kill him such that he could nullify his mission. And now you also know why it's important to understand the nature of the incarnation, that is, of God taking the form of man as Jesus did. Because if you enter into this story in chapter 4, the story of his temptation, thinking that Jesus retained his omnipotent power, when he came to earth as a man, then don't the temptations seem a bit silly? It's be like a child trying to sink a naval battleship by throwing pebbles at its side, right? What chance does Satan really have to tempt God if what he's working with is the full power of God? It's hardly a fair fight. In fact, you wouldn't even perceive Jesus as being in any jeopardy, would you? You kind of wonder what the whole thing's about. Even Jesus' long period of fasting, which is what we're going to open with here in a second, even that would seem like a a much ado about nothing, right? I mean, because God's not going to be threatened by a fast. (laughs) We just diminish what's going on when we unnecessarily add power to what Jesus is doing. That's not how to approach chapter 4. As I mentioned last week, his identity as Jesus, as God, that is, is full and, and complete. There's no doubt that Jesus is God. His identity is never in question. He is God. 
But that being true, Paul's already taught us that he emptied himself. And friends, I'd have to ask you to consider, what does that phrase mean? It has to mean something or it wouldn't be in the Bible. What does it mean that Jesus emptied himself? Not counting his equality with God, something that he had to hold on to. So what does it mean to give up equality with God? What does it mean to be emptied? It means he voluntarily relinquished his form and position, the things that made him equal with the Father, and instead took the form of man, fully man, sharing all the same physical and mental and emotional limitations that mankind has, including, by the way, the ability to experience temptation. You remember what Scripture says about God on the matter of temptation? You remember what James says about this? James 1.13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil. Do you hear that? God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. All right, so God in his heavenly form, his full and true form, cannot be tempted by evil. So had Satan come to Jesus when Jesus was in his full form as God, he could never have been tempted. It would have been a completely worthless exercise. Chapter 4, then, would have been a completely meaningless chapter of Scripture. But then you hear this in the book of Hebrews, concerning Jesus while in the form of man. Hebrews says this, chapter 2, verse 17. He had to be made like his brethren, like us, in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he suffered, He is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. So Jesus was made like us, the writer says, that he would become a man no different than you and I are. He did it to become our substitute in death. And along the way to the cross, Hebrews says he was tempted in things he suffered. So obviously, that refers to the temptation to avoid the pain of the cross, among other things. So which is it? Is God tempted or not? Is Jesus God or not? The answer is yes. Jesus is God. But in the form of man, he voluntarily relinquished that part of him that made him equal to God the Father. He became man no different than we are. And as a result, like we said last week, that meant that if he was to do things that were miraculous, supernatural, God-like, it required that he depend on another member of the Godhead, that is the Holy Spirit, to do that work through him. That's the way God worked when Jesus was in the form of man on earth. By the way, you can certainly identify with Jesus feeling tempted, by the way, to avoid the suffering that he experienced. Who wouldn't feel that way, right? That's the way we all feel. But that's exactly the point I'm making from Scripture. Jesus was just like you and me in that regard. Feeling tempted to do the wrong things, except he never succumbed to that temptation. As Hebrews says again in Hebrews 4.15, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. If God in his eternal form cannot be tempted, yet Jesus in his human form was tempted, then the only conclusion we can make is Jesus was not Superman. He was just man. His identity was God, but his form was man. And as a result, he did not have superpowers, as I said. That's why he needed the Holy Spirit to come upon him at his baptism before he could launch his ministry. But what that also means for us in chapter 4, importantly, is that Satan's attacks had real effect on him. Jesus is in real jeopardy. He has the potential to succumb to Satan's attacks. Had he done so, we wouldn't be where we are right now. And as such, 
Jesus has an omission to satisfy the Father in obedience through these circumstances. And understanding this from a human perspective changes the whole dynamic of this chapter. If you've ever read this with that sense in the back of your mind that, well, that sounds hard, but yeah, he was God. I couldn't have done that. Well, don't be so quick on that one. Don't be so quick because he didn't have any extra ability you don't have. That is to say, physically, spiritually, he wasn't riding on some kind of super wave of spiritual power that you and I don't have access to. What did he have? He had his will and he had the Holy Spirit. What do you have? Jesus is doing this in chapter 4. He's subjecting himself to these things to nullify what Adam did as our federal representative in the garden. Adam chose to believe in Satan's word, which was lies, of course, instead of heeding God's word, which was the truth. When he did that, he single-handedly handed Satan dominion over his soul and all those that were his offspring. And by that failure to resist Satan's temptation, he put all of us into bondage to sin. Can't wait to see him in heaven. Jesus came to fix that problem. He came to redeem us from that bondage. But to do that, think about it, in order for him to redeem us from what Adam did to us, he has to become our new federal representative in place of Adam. That is why he had to take the form of man. Not merely the appearance of man, but the actual form of man. So that he could be a new Adam for us. And then he had to face the tempter, just as Adam did. Only this time, he has to make different choices than Adam did, so that he can be qualified to be our sinless federal representative, in which we then become born again into his nature. That brings us finally, as you might be saying, to the opening verses of chapter 4. I hope you'll appreciate that that background is important, because otherwise it's a lot harder to appreciate what's going on in this chapter. Let's read the first two verses of the opening part of this chapter. Verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights... He then became hungry. Just as a little aside here, if you think he's superhuman, that statement makes sense. If you don't think he's superhuman, you're sitting there going, then he became hungry? Right? It changes things. All right, let's look at it. Sometime soon after his baptism, Jesus wanders deeper into the wilderness. Remember I said last time when we looked at the baptism of John, the wilderness of Judea, it's a barren, hot mountain desert. It's got rocks, it's got sand. There are few shrubs here and there, but basically it's just desolate. It's hard to even find water there. It's very difficult to survive there for any length of time. And he enters that wilderness because the Spirit leads him there, Matthew says. In Mark's Gospel, though, the language is even more emphatic. In Mark 1.12, it says, immediately the Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness. So according to Mark, the Spirit drove Jesus out there. Here again, that reminds you that Jesus in the form of man was dependent on the Spirit to guide him in the will of the Father. He leads Jesus, it says, to a desolate place specifically so that he could experience the temptations of the enemy. So what's going to happen, of course, as you know, is the devil's going to have three opportunities to tempt Jesus into disqualifying himself as our Redeemer. Again, these are opportunities for Jesus to chart a new course for humanity, one that's the opposite of the course that was established by Adam. And to make sure that we have no doubt concerning Jesus' worthiness, the Father has stacked the deck against him. And when, In fact, it's really interesting if you do a little comparison with Adam for a minute. When Adam fell into sin and he brought all of us with him, he had everything going his way. 
He lived in a, a literally a perfect set of circumstances. He, it, was, it was cool. It was pleasant. It was in a garden. It was specially designed for Adam. It was well watered. He had food everywhere. He was not alone. He had a wife to help him. Walk with God in fellowship. He was innocent. And he only had one rule. He had one rule by God. The one law. He just couldn't eat of a single tree, as you know. So long as he observed that one rule, he had no cause for concern. And even that one restriction, frankly, wasn't much of a temptation because he had so many other trees to turn to for food. I'm, I'm sure he could barely count all the variety of fruit that he could have eaten, right? What's one more? I mean, this is so easy. I know, if I'd been there, I'd done the same thing. But it's still, it sounds so easy, right? The deck, in a sense, was stacked against the enemy because the enemy has come up against man living in idyllic bliss. He has an infinite number of ways that he can be obedient. He only has one possible path to sin. Think about that. He can make a million decisions on any given day and be in righteousness. Just one decision is all that he has to make to be in sin. That's it. It's the most minimal of temptations. Right? He has to find a way to make Adam want one other kind of fruit that's not already available in some other form. It's like trying to get someone to eat a tangerine instead of an orange. How? I mean, really, what are you going to say? It's sweeter? I mean, what is the temptation going to consist of? And despite having all the advantages in this contest, man and woman fell. Man and woman fell in the garden. Really, the Lord could not have made the test that I had any easier than he did. Now, flip the coin for a minute. Jesus sets out to prove himself as our second Adam, and the deck is stacked considerably against Jesus. It's a harsh desert. He's going to be extremely hungry. He has no friends. He's going to face an enemy who's already won and is fighting from a position of strength. Jesus is trying to get it back. Satan is going to be allowed to tempt him not just once, but three times while he's in a weakened state. And he will face these attacks just as Adam did. That is, as a mere man. He will not have the Father's protection. He will not have the Spirit's supernatural power. He doesn't even have the ministry of angels until the temptations are over. He's by himself. Notice in verse 2, even before the temptations begin, it says he goes on a fast for 40 days. Now, here again, perhaps you assumed he survived this so well because God can do anything. Well, like I said, that's not what we're looking at here. His body experienced the very same things in very much the same way that your body would if you did the same thing. With no extra advantage. Maybe you read this and you assume, oh, 40 days, that's just an exaggeration. You know, just to make dramatic effect for us in the story. Yeah, you know, because nobody can really go that long without eating. If I miss lunch, I get dizzy. You know, if you're thinking like that, then again, you're not really looking at the text honestly. That's not true. Under Jewish custom, a religious fast generally took one of two forms. Fasts were either a food fast or a food and water fast. A food fast means drinking only water. And a food and water fast means consuming absolutely nothing whatsoever. Now, obviously, you can't survive without water for very long, so a food and water fast would only last a few days, maybe at very most a week. But the human body can survive, despite what your teenagers tell you, it can survive a considerable amount of time without food. Weeks. Weeks. So a food fast could last anywhere for a day up to 40 days, depending on why the person might be fasting. And that's the type of fast that Jesus is enduring here. He eats nothing for 40 days And as a result, he grows weaker as time goes along. But the body has a fascinating way of responding to long-term food fasts of this sort. In the first few days as you fast, your hunger response just grows and grows. And it's pretty dramatic, as you may have known if you fasted. And your energy level drops considerably. You could tell you're not eating. 
But then, if you keep going, after those early days, your hunger starts to fade. And your strength actually returns because your body has kicked into converting your fat stores into energy. And it gets pretty efficient at that after a while. And for the most part, for the next five weeks or so, your body just continues functioning reasonably well, burning fat. You lose a lot of weight, but, you know, it's burning fat and you're living. I've spoken to people who have endured this exact fast, a 40-day fast of no food. Christians. And they report experiencing hunger now and again, but not as strongly as you probably assume. There's days they don't feel anything. And they go to work. They go to school. They live their lives. They don't lay on the bed all day long on fasting. You know, they just... No one even knows, except people are saying, what are you doing? You look great. You know, and they're saying, I wouldn't recommend it. They get a little more tired. They're a little more weak. But in general, they endure it. All right, so 40 days or so into this fast, something interesting happens. After about five weeks, your body's largely exhausted its fat stores. And so it realizes, I'm going to need a new source of energy pretty soon. And at that point, the sensation of hunger kicks back in with a vengeance. The person gets really hungry at that point. So hungry, in fact, that all they can think about is eating. You may have read stories of what people are willing to do when they're enduring starvation in like a concentration camp or in some other bad situation. They'll eat dirt. They'll eat shoe leather. They'll eat bark. Have you heard stories of this sort of thing? It's, it's terrible to consider it, right? The hunger that comes upon someone at that point drives them so intensely It compels them to do things that normal people would never consider doing. That's where Jesus is right now. In verse 2, Matthew says, After those 40 days, he became hungry. And that's not some bit of humorous understatement on Matthew's part. What he's describing is what any Jew of that day would have understood from their experience with this kind of thing. They know what he's talking about. This is the worst possible time to be tempted This is the point where you're weakest physically. You're incredibly distracted by the sudden return of intense hunger. The drive to survive here is so strong, it overwhelms every other thought you might have. The only urge that's stronger at this point in your life is the urge to breathe. And you need food. And it's under those conditions that the father decides he's going to let his son experience temptation by the enemy. We're going to wait till next week to examine the three temptations in detail. You probably figured that out half an hour ago. But let's finish tonight... Briefly, considering Satan's goal in what he's going to go do and the methods that he uses. We'll come back to these again next week. First, the goal is to make Jesus disqualify himself. It's not enough for him to kill the Messiah while he's still qualified. That is, if he had not yet fallen into sin, it's not enough to just take his life. I mean, if Satan had been permitted by the Father to kill Jesus, the Father would simply have resurrected Jesus from the dead and then let him continue on with his mission. After all, that very thing happens three years later. Satan's got to find a way to cause Jesus to voluntarily disqualify himself by taking some kind of action that's contrary to the will of the Father. In other words, as he did with Adam, he has to do with Jesus if he's going to stop the mission. He must bring Jesus to the point where Jesus willingly goes against the word of the Lord. And to do that, moving from the goal now to his methods, to do that he has two primary tactics. And these are things we will study in depth in the next session because if you're going to defeat the enemy in your own struggles, you've got to understand the enemy well. Here's how he works. First, he depends on the strength of lies. And secondly, he exploits the weaknesses of your flesh. So he twists the truth to make his temptations sound reasonable, perhaps even sounding consistent with God's will, and he works to harness your natural desires so that 
When you're convinced, you'll take the bait. And he does the same thing he did with women. If you remember what he did with women in the garden, he twisted the word of God when he spoke to woman, questioning whether God's word could really be trusted. Then he provoked the woman to gaze upon the fruit on the tree, and she took renewed interest in it. And as he drew her attention to the fruit's enticing appearance, he gave her the suggestion of great things to be gained if she were to eat of it, and then she ate. So he lied, and then he manipulated her lusts. And he does the same thing over and over again. He doesn't come up with a new idea. He just repeats the ones that work. Satan's going to twist scripture, telling Jesus lies, not just once, but three times. And he's going to try to tempt Jesus into sinning, not just one way as he did with woman, but in three different ways. And the three ways that he tries to tempt Jesus correspond to the three categories of ways that anyone can be tempted. John gives us a helpful um, short summary of those three ways. The last thing we'll look at tonight, First John 2.16. Listen to what John says about being tempted. He says, for all that is in the world, all that is in the world, and then he summarizes it, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. All that, he says, is not from the Father, it is from the world. Those are the three ways you can be tempted. Every temptation you could ever name fits into one of those three categories. You can be tempted by the lusts of your physical body, your flesh, You can be tempted by the lust of your eyes, which is a distinct category, because here we're talking about something that captivates you, distracts you from following God, and leads you astray. And or, lastly, you can be tempted by boastful, vain glory of life, he says, which is anything that appeals to your pride or your sense of ego, of self-worth. So you name a temptation, I can put it into one of those categories. Temptations to give in to your body's demands temptations of your vision, that is, to gain something without the need to experience the trouble and the effort to get it. Sort of a chasing after the shiny bright object. Or tempted to defend your ego, your pride, your honor, your reputation. In the temptations Jesus gets, he gets all three. He gets tempted to solve the food problem for his body. He gets tempted by a vision of what he could have of kingdoms worldwide if he would just let Satan give them to him instead of going to the cross to get them. And he was tempted by a pride to defend his honor and reputation as the Son of God. Satan went at all three, trying to figure out what would work. Later this week, you and I, as I said Sunday, we're going to remember Jesus' death on the cross. That's the moment he died to to make everything possible, paying the price for our sins. I'm sure as you guys go about spending time with your family and friends, your your Easter meal, whatever you have planned, maybe you'll go to that Sunday service with, with another church perhaps. I know you'll be thinking about what Jesus did on the day he died. That's why we have the day Easter. But I hope you may give a few moments to what Jesus had to endure before the cross. Of why and how he was even qualified to hang on that cross. You see, he didn't just save us by his death. He saved us by his perfect sinless life first. A life that lives in place of our worthless, rebellious life. In a sense, and hear me when I say this properly, in a sense, dying was the easy part for him. Yeah, I mean, dying on a cross is truly horrible. I'm not saying it isn't. But he wasn't the only one to die on a cross. In fact, when he died on this cross, there were two other guys doing it with him. So in a sense, anyone can die on a cross. What made that so special was no one else was qualified to die on that cross for you or for me. And what qualified him, the thing that made him an acceptable sacrifice, and the truly difficult thing that he did was to be merely man and yet Never give in to temptation. How hard is that? How hard is that? And he did it not just once. He did it every day of his life. He did not give in.
to temptation. That's why he could get up on that cross. Otherwise, there'd been no point in his death. Remember that this weekend too. Let's go to prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for your son and for his sinless life. Thank you, Father, for the example of a man determined to obey. And we know, Father, he was not saddled with the sin nature that we receive from Adam. And so perhaps, Father, we, we see that as our excuse. But, Father, persuade us of something different by your word. That though we do have sin and he did not. Nevertheless, Father, we now have the spirit that he had. And by that spirit, Father, you tell us in your word that we are no longer slaves to sin. And that we should no longer present our members to sin as slaves to sin. But rather, Father, we should remember that by the spirit living in us, we can and we should move on from sin to something better. To resisting the same temptations that your son resisted in his perfect life. Let us have that confidence, Father, that if Jesus could do it, we could do it. Not because we are Jesus, but because we have the same spirit. Give us hope, Father, to to be who you would call us to be. Hope not in senseless and fantasies, senseless fantasies, Father, but rather hope that is grounded in your word and understands what we have been given already and the power that it has within us to change us. We pray, Lord, that the spirit would make that clear to us and that as we seek to testify to you this weekend, perhaps in conversations that are made possible by this uh, observance of Easter, that we would remind people that he is not only our sacrificial Savior, he is also our sinless Savior. Thank you, Father, for that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.